is Tuesday, July the 28th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I am Bill Whalen, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow and the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism, and it is my pleasure to moderate this week's conversation. Now, those of you who have been watching Goodfellows, and I believe this is the 15th episode we recorded, you know the drill by now, but for those of you who are turning in for the first time, here's what you're about to see. I'm joined today by three Hoover Fellows. We call them the Goodfellows. We keep calling them Goodfellows until Martin Scorsese tells us to cease and desist. It's a conversation with three mm-hmm. fellows offering their very unique insights into what may lie ahead in these uncertain times. Now let's meet the Goodfellows, beginning with John Cochran. He's an economist and the Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. John's also the author of the Grumpy Economist blog and the voice behind the Grumpy Economist podcast, both of which you should mark as must-reads and must-listens in this time of pandemics. Few people explain things better than my colleague, John Cochran. John, how are you today? Now, John, I would note that you're up and we're doing this early in the morning and you're ready to do this at the crack of dawn. So, my God, man, what time do you get up in the morning? <laughs> Five or six o'clock in the morning, you know, early bird gets the worm. Okay, very good. Our second good fellow coming in to us from the Forest Prime Evil is Neil Ferguson. Neil is a renowned historian and author. He is also the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Neil, I'm not going to ask you what time you get up in the morning. I don't think you ever sleep. I think yours is a relentless 24-7 pursuit of truth, justice, and meeting the next deadline. Well, I did get up earlier than John, I must confess, but that was rather due to my uh, two-year-old Campbell, who decided to interrupt my sleep. And uh, at 3.30 a.m., I just, um, I'm lost at that point. There's no going back, especially when there's a book due at the publishers at the end of this week. And that explains my wild staring eyes this morning. Okay, well, we'll take a vote next week on doing this at four o'clock in the morning and see see how that vote turns out. Uh, now, ordinarily, our third good fellow is uh, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Hoover Institution's Fawad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow, but H.R. has the week off for good behavior. So sitting in him for today, sitting in for him today, we're fortunate to be joined by Bjorn Lomborg. He is a Hoover Institution Visiting Fellow, President of the Copenhagen Consensus Center and Visiting Professor at the Copenhagen Business School. He's also a best-selling author whose new book, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Cost Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor and Fails to Fix the Planet, was released just a couple weeks ago. It is on Amazon. By all means, go and get it. Bjorn, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. You're coming to us live from the continent, from the old world. Tell us how you and your countrymen are faring in this time of pandemic. And I believe actually you're in Sweden, not Denmark right now. Is that correct? I'm in southern Sweden right now. Yes. And if you had to pick a place to to uh, to uh, stand out the pandemic, I think this is not a bad place to be. Uh, it's certainly a, a less locked down than many other places. Very good. So uh, we'll get into climate change in a moment. Uh, I can think of a few topics more perfectly tailored for a broadcast that likes to get into social and geopolitical and political concerns. But I think, Bjorn, you could do our uh, viewers a favor by just talking a little science for a couple of minutes. It seems that we get right past the science into the argument side of this topic. So why don't we take a couple minutes and just give us a few data points on what exactly is going on with the planet, why climate change is a concern? Well, so fundamentally, look, Climate change is a real issue. It's something that we should be concerned about and something that we should fix, but we should fix it smartly. And we need to get a sense of proportion. So much of this conversation, I I would actually argue that we're very often focused mostly uh, on the science part, as you you rightly mentioned, and that no problem, no, no issue there. You know, we are putting out CO2 mostly from fossil fuel burning, and that increases the temperature, the average temperature of the planet. The issue is then what happens and this, I think, is where we get the sense that it's the end of the world. You know, you see a lot of these stories about how uh, uh, there's a, 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 a study that went around the world, also on uh, Washington Post, uh, a cover story, 187 million people are going to be flooded by climate change. It's a real concern. Sea levels are going to rise. That's going to, all other things equal, make it harder to live close to where, uh, where, where the sea is. But they forgot to adapt, uh, account for adaptation. And obviously people are actually gonna adapt. And if they adapt, the very same paper says, no, it's not 187 million people, it's 305,000 people. So 600 times less. One is a catastrophe, the other is a problem. And I think that's the conversation that we need to be much clearer about. So that's one side of it. Yes, there's a real issue. We're often hearing an exaggerated version of that issue. 
The other part is, of course, to realize that even if we do something about this problem, it's going to have real costs. And so we need to be sure that we actually weigh the cost of not doing something against the cost of doing something. How much can we avoid of damage versus how much extra damage are we actually incurring because we're having more expensive energy, less reliable energy, so on. That's what you know. Bill Nordhaus, the guy who got the uh, Nobel Prize in Economics in 2018, has spent his entire career on. This is climate economics. You both need the science and the economics. And the economics of climate tells us, yes, you should do something. You shouldn't do all of it. And I think that's the difficult balance that we don't have a good conversation on. And that's, of course, what my book and a lot of other uh, conversations really try to get into. How do we think about Where's the right, what's the smart thing to do on climate? And it's unfortunately not always the things that are most talked about in the media. You know, and I'm concerned that you're bringing a knife to a gunfight here and that you want to have a, a sane, rational conversation about climate change. And you know who you're up against. You're up against an angry-faced Swedish teenager diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome who accuses the world's leaders of engaging in profit-taking, or words exactly, mass extinction. Uh, with all due apologies to Mr. Rogers and Hammerstein, Bjorn, how do you solve a problem like Greta Thunberg? <laughs> so I, I I don't think this is about, you know, I, I, I'm not sure I could convince Greta, although you know, she, she seems like she's an intel, intelligent girl, but right. I think it's much more about approaching the fact that the vast number of people around the world really think this is an emergency. This is not about convincing Greta, it's about convincing you know, moms and dads around the world uh, and one of the frightful things about the climate alarmism that we are increasingly seeing, the ones that keep pushing the stories, 187 million people are going to get flooded and so on, which has a little bit of truth on a lot of omission of, for instance, adaptation, is that it scares people witless. So we know from uh, a recent survey by YouGov, across the world, 28 nations, on average, 48% of everyone on the planet now believes that global warming is likely to lead to the extinction of the human race. This is obviously a very, very different thing from having 305,000 people having to move by the end of the century. Remember, that's about half the number of people that move out of California every year. That's a manageable issue. The end of the human race, then you throw everything in the kitchen sink at it. I think this is not a question of winning the gun fight because yes, I'm gonna lose that one, but getting us a little bit away from just being outright stupid and maybe do something that's slightly less ineffective, something that'll actually help the planet more, help the world's poor more, and actually also fix more of climate change. I would argue, you know, you can probably argue, you know, push people a little bit more towards the rational side of that conversation. But yeah, I know, I know this, uh, you know, it's not as exciting, it's not as sexy, if you will, but it yeah. happens to be more correct. But before we, we completely uh, go into the politics of this, which I think we should, but the politics and the religion of it, uh, I think it would be good to summarize for our listeners just what the science does say. Um, short version, as I understand it, is, yeah, we'll get a couple of degrees uh, centigrade average temperature rise. We're very likely to get a sea level rise on the order of half a meter at best. Um, then, then much more contentious, this claim that the weather is getting more volatile and variable. Uh, California uh, blames its wildfires on climate change. Whereas, I, as I understand the facts, basically we moved the climate we have north about 100 kilometers, and that's about it. Um, but I'd like you to comment on the variability question. And then, of course, what I've watched is the economic modeling, where the hard nut is that even if you put your thumb on the scale, even if you put an elephant's thumb on the scales, assuming almost no adaptation, assuming no geoengineering, assuming no turn to nuclear power, assuming no carbon sequestration, you get 10% of GDP in the year 2100. That's five years of growth. That means the year 2100 is otherwise the disaster that the year 2095 would be. Uh, that's half of what residential zoning costs the United States alone, <laughs> the latest estimates. Very 10% uh, of GDP in the year 2100, when we're already about 50% richer than we are now, is not a civilization-ending problem. Uh, and that is a vast overestimate, as I understand the economic modeling, which is very mechanical. So you have to 
think of some extreme black swan event feedback loop or some sort of moral save the planet, which I'm, I'm sympathetic to, you know, melting the ice caps is a, is a once in a, uh, in a millennium, in a, in a, what was the word for a million years kind of change. Um, anyway, so could you just for our readers, uh, I went too long, but what is the actual science of the danger facing us? Yeah, John, I think that's a that's a good summary. So, you know, the UN Climate Panel uh, tells us exactly as you say, uh, uh, temperature rise maybe three or four degrees by the end of the century if we do absolutely nothing. Uh, again, centigrade, so that would be like seven degrees Fahrenheit uh, on on average. Uh, we'll have sea level rise; could be almost up to a meter, so you know, somewhere between one and three feet of sea level rise. Uh, those are not the main issues, as you rightly point out. And also, when people love to say, we're going to see more variability, we're going to see, uh, the only thing that we can really see is we're going to see more downpour, we are going to see more rain. Uh, and mostly, that will actually be a benefit for agriculture. But yes, it will also lead uh, possibly uh, to more flooding, although we can't really see that because flooding is much more dependent on how we actually uh, uh, adapt with our rivers. Uh, and then you know, the big things, hurricanes, that kind of thing, uh, we probably estimate that we'll see fewer but stronger hurricanes. And stronger is worse than than fewer is better, if you will. Sorry, the, the U.S. policy on this is to subsidize people to live in floodplains yes. and hurricane-prone areas. <laughs> Which, of course, is, is, is a dumb policy all around. Uh, but, but you're absolutely right. We have no sense of the magnitude of this, and that's because we don't look at the economics. Uh, so, you know, if you look at hurricanes, which is by far the biggest and costliest disasters on the planet, right now, the cost per year on average is 0.04% of GDP. And so if there was no global warming, it would decline because we get richer and we get much more robust down to 0.01. Because of global warming, it'll only decline to 0.02. I mean, first of all, it's actually a reduction, not an increase. And also it's a very, very small number. So I think you're absolutely right in saying, you know, Nordhaus and all these people who've actually looked at this estimate, the net cost by 2100 is going to be around three, maybe 4% of GDP. Uh, the UN Climate Panel famously said by 2070s, the cost would be somewhere between 0.2 and 2% of GDP. So as we also expect, people will be much richer. And uh, let me just give you the numbers. This is the UN central estimate every person on the planet will be 2.63 times richer in 2075. Because of global warming, it'll feel like we're only 2.56 times richer. Yeah, that's a problem. That's not an end, end of world. Also, as an economist, if the, if the, I think the environmentalists would say, well, GDP is not the right goal. Because if we want to grow GDP over the next 100 years, I got about 87 policies ahead of reducing carbon that does that. Let's fix the tax code. Let's, you know, let's fix the regulatory system. Let's figure out why the third world is still so ridiculously poorer than the rest of us and so forth. Yes, and, and absolutely. And of course, that underscores why is it we're spending so much of our energy and focus on fixing this one problem and not on all the others that could actually help future generations much more. Well, and I would add, and then Neil, poor Neil has not gotten a chance yet. Uh, as I look at it, this, there's also a host of environmental problems if you live in the U.S. or in the backgrounds of all the three of us, um, you know, climate change is potentially a high environmental problem. If you live in India, uh, you're dying of emphysema because of particulate pollution. That has nothing to do with CO2. If you live in much of Africa, you're dying because the water is bad. That has nothing to do with, you know, chemical pollution, industrial pollution. All the things that our societies have largely cured uh, are much greater threats to human health and animal health. Uh, you want to save the animals. We don't need to cool the planet. We need to, for the same cost as we could, uh, as we're uh, putting into climate change policies, we could give them, you know, the state of Wyoming every year, and the, the animals would far prefer that than some climate change. We're we're gonna we're gonna kill off all the large animals long before the planet gets hot for for other reasons. Is it the chance of the historian now to? offer an alternative uh, perspective because uh, I, th I think it's important we, we don't uh, sing too much from the sim same hymn sheet. I, I, I'm very vividly reminded of uh, the way history springs surprises on, on people who 
who who predict the future. I, I was at the World Economic Forum at Davos <laughs> in January, and Greta Thunberg spoke there. You may remember she she gave a rather uh, uncompromising address to the delegates. Let's be clear. We don't need a low carbon economy. We don't need to lower emissions. Our emissions have to stop if we are to have a chance to stay below the 1.5 degree target. Any plan or policy of yours that doesn't include radical emission cuts at the source starting today is completely insufficient for meeting the 1.5 or well below 2 degree commitments of the Paris Agreements. Now, history has a great sense of humor because uh, as she was speaking, although almost all the delegates uh, were unaware of it, a pandemic was uh, racing towards Europe and indeed the rest of the world uh, from China. And that uh, pandemic, which we've talked about so much this year, had nothing whatsoever to do with climate change. And of course, uh, this was the absurdity of of the situation. There we were spending three days in the mountains agonizing about climate change, the only real issue on the agenda of the World Economic Forum that year. And, 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 and the pandemic was about to strike. And, and the perfect thing, uh, and you'll both appreciate this, is that the pandemic gave Greta Thunberg exactly what she'd asked for, because there was an immediate and drastic reduction in emissions starting in China uh, and then in Europe. Uh, there's a nice paper that shows that the, the decline of emissions as a result of the lockdowns in China and Europe was of the order of, of, of 20 to, to 40%. So uh, Greta's wish was granted, but we also realized as it was being granted, or I think we should have realized, uh, that the cost of these drastic emissions was uh, mass unemployment and the collapse of economic output. So there was a kind of wonderful uh, teachable moment there, I thought. Uh, we, we actually got a perfect illustration of what Greta Thunberg's very radical demands would do. They would shut down the global economy, uh, drastically reduce output, uh, more drastically than anything since the Great Depression, and throw millions of people out of work. And I think this goes to the heart of your, of your book, Bjorn, because it's an, a perfect illustration of the fact that the maximalist demands of the very radical extinction rebellion type of environmentalists imply huge economic losses, which would almost certainly exceed any gains that might be uh, achieved from the vantage point of the climate. Let, let me add one more point, which I think is really important here. It's not a historian's point, it's more of a physicist's point. And here I have to come clean. Uh, my mother's a physicist, uh, my sister's a physicist at Yale. I'm the black sheep of the family, but I, I picked up enough around the dinner table over the years to know it's really very hard to model a complex system. And if you're expecting uh, nice, reliable outputs uh, from your model, you haven't learned anything really about complexity. Uh, the, worth, the Earth's atmosphere, the climate is a perfectly uh, good example of a complex system. And uh, I, I'm pretty sure that the predictions that have come from Nick Stern and others uh, make assumptions that will almost certainly be invalidated uh, by reality. Apart from anything else we know, and here I can revert to being a historian, that some of the biggest changes in, in the Earth's average temperature have had nothing to do uh, with the uh, emissions of, of gases. They've been to do with solar activity. The really big shifts in global temperature in the last millennium are actually to do with solar uh, storms that are, and their ebb and, and flow. So I, I think some of this discussion is actually profoundly flawed in that it's imagining that we can make deterministic models of a complex system. We probably can. I would just add, as economists, we have a certain experience with large computer models that put together many little uh, items, each of which seems sensible and add them up to try to forecast things. These were a disaster when the Club of Rome tried them in the 1970s to tell us we'd run out of resources. The large scale Keynesian macroeconomic models were a disaster in the late 1970s when inflation and unemployment completely befuddled them. Uh, so, and this is exactly the, the style. Well, you might wanna comment, Jordan, since you're on top of this, uh, how faith in these large scale models 
is proceeding now that we have 20 years of experience to see uh, how actually they're working out and, and how, how reliable. I mean, I think one of the big things is the uncertainty of both economic and climate forecasts, which nobody seems to publish standard errors uh, along with their forecasts. Yeah. So, so my sense, and again, I'm not a physicist, but my sense is when you look at the models, sure, there's a lot of uncertainty. And actually, if you look at uh, many of the models, can't really model the Earth's actual temperature. Uh, you know, they're sort of within five degrees of it, uh, and which is why you always see the uh, the uh, the uh, the delta, so the change over time, which is much more well behaved. Uh, but but I think most people would also say, look, this is not about getting it right. It's simply about saying if you add on an extra forcer, which is CO2, all of the things equal, you would expect to see higher temperatures. And that probably seems reasonable. Certainly when, when we've looked over the last uh, 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 you know, 20, 30 years, we've seen what we actually expected. But obviously a lot of what we expect is the inputs into the model. So it's very much about how much are we gonna emit. Uh, one of the big things that changed was we we got a uh, Montreal Accord where we basically cut all the uh, hydrofluorocarbons that uh, break down the ozone layer. That turns out to have been the best sort of climate policy we've ever done. It was fairly cheap and it reduced uh, 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 the effective uh, greenhouse gases much more than anything we've done since then. Uh, and that was one thing that we hadn't predicted uh, uh, because you know you didn't think about that back in in the 80s or early uh, 90s but the idea here is that even if you grant the models i think that's much more in interesting and that's back to you uh, uh, uh nile um how much can you actually cut uh you mentioned the 20 to 40% but remember that's 20 40% when it was the worst so in in china they reduced their emissions by 22% on the day that they'd shut down the economy the most which of course still shows you need to you know you still need to keep warm or you know uh, have your food or be able to you know have your electricity you still use a lot so we, we expect there's one study that shows if the us gets a second wave as well the us will probably over the year cut about 10% of its CO2 emissions. But that basically means you gotta have 10 of those every year if you wanna get down to zero, unless we can do it in a much smarter way, which of course I, I would be arguing. So this is where I'd like to take us because I think we're falling into the trap of arguing about the models and the forecasts and the degree centigrade, and then saying, well, if it's a problem, then Greta Thunberg gets her way. Whereas in fact, the greatest question is the what do we do about a question and the uncertainties associated with that. I think, let me, let me just, I think where we're all basic, if, we, if you put sort of technocratic us in charge, what we're going to do is um, uh, move uh, something like a carbon tax rather than build high-speed trains and, de and detailed regulations on what everything does. Uh, we're going to move quick, swiftly to nuclear power. We're going to um, have a lot of uh, research and development on alternative power things. We're going to use natural gas as a transition fuel and pretty much problem solved. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the way our politics is going. So let me just tee that up as sort of the, the easy, there's an easy technocratic answer if only people would be willing to do it because it doesn't absolve us of our post-colonialist sins to simply say, well, we'll build a lot of nuclear plants, we'll put some solar out in the desert, we'll put a carbon tax on, and and uh, and this problem will be as it is solved essentially in the United States. Our our carb, our emissions are thanks to fracking. <laughs> our emissions are going way down. The problem right now is China and India building coal plants. For heaven's sake! Uh, so let, let's let's uh, get you guys on sort of the, the easy technocratic answer, and then I think we'll move on to uh, if Bill is okay with this. The politics of why that seems so hard to achieve. Here's what I'd like to segue to, gentlemen. We have an election 14 weeks from today in the U.S. And Joe Biden and, and Donald Trump have a lot of differences, but perhaps climate change is their most stark difference in this regard. You go on the Trump website, you do not find mention of the words climate change. If you try to figure out the Trump position, it's something along these lines. Trump has called climate change mythical. He's called it non-existent. He's called it an expensive hoax. He has also subsequently described it as a, quote, serious subject, which is, quote, very important to me. So he's all over the map. 
But Joe Biden, on the other hand, you go to Joe Biden's website, you find very specific language. I'd like to read it to you. It's under the heading Clean Energy Revolution and Environmental Justice, which maybe we should talk about as well, what that phrase means. But here is what the Biden campaign wrote. I'd like all three of you to comment on this. Quote, he, Joe Biden, he will lead an effort to get every major country to ramp up the ambition of their domestic climate targets. He will make sure those commitments are transparent and enforceable and stop countries from cheating by using America's economic leverage and power of example. He will fully integrate climate change into our foreign policy and national security strategies, as well as our approach to trade. So candidate Biden seems to think two things. Number one, other countries are willing to work with us on climate change. And number two, the United States has leverage. Agree or disagree? Well, Bill, I listened to this with amazement and, and amusement in equal measure. Uh, during the time that Joe Biden was vice president of the United States, uh, the increase uh, in CO2 emissions uh, in the world as a whole uh, was 57% uh, due to China. As John's already mentioned, uh, China is building and indeed building more than ever coal uh, fueled uh, power stations. It's going to be a part of the economic uh, recovery strategy for 2020. And I would dearly like to know how uh, a President Biden is going to be more successful in constraining uh, China than President Obama was, which was not at all. And I do find this the most frustrating feature of the debate, whether it's uh, Greta Thunberg or Al Gore or any of those people who like to moralize and sermonize about climate change. They never, ever explain how China is going to be persuaded, pressurized or coerced to reduce its CO2 emissions. And if it isn't persuaded, if it, if it just carries on like this, uh, then it really doesn't matter how much self-sacrifice Europeans and Americans engage in. It will have absolutely no impact if China continues down this path. And nobody ever seems to want to discuss that. And I actually wanted to ask you, Bjorn, because you've been in so many of these debates and you've taken on these uh, sometimes maddeningly sanctimonious environmentalists for so many years. Why do they never, ever confront what I'm going to call the giant panda in the room of China? It's a good question. I think partly because it's a losing argument, uh, partly because it it obviously confronts something else, which I think we also forget when we talk about China alone, that India and the rest of Africa and to a certain extent, Latin America also wants to get rich. Uh, I mean, uh, if you look at China, they've gone from being one of the poorest countries in the world uh, to a middle income and, and pretty decent in a middle income country, uh, which I think most developing countries would love to emulate. And they've done so on the back of a lot of cheap and readily available power. Uh, and, and certainly India wants to do the same. Certainly most other, uh, most other countries want to do that. And I think we're simply setting ourselves up for failure if we believe that this is about making Europe or the US cut their emissions. Because what happens very often is we're simply cutting our emissions and outsourcing most of the emissions to the rest of the world. Uh, there, there's uh, one study that shows if you add up all the different legal uh, structures that we have across the world, we've caught a lot of CO2. But if you look at the global emissions, we've caught none at all. The UN, in, its, uh, uh, in a surprisingly honest uh, review last year, uh, looked at the, uh, uh, the success of climate policies the last 10 years, and they said, we can't tell the difference between what has actually happened and the scenario where we assumed that there would be no climate policy since 2005. What has happened is Europe and the US and a few other countries have actually reduced their emissions, but we've seen China and many others just simply take over all of that extra space and just emit that much more. That's not how you make a global treaty. That's how you make essentially feel-good policy in, in the rich world, and then of course make sure that the poor world still gets to get richer. And beyond for the record, for our listeners who may be interested, if you look at the total increase in CO2 emissions between 2007 and 2018, 
57% uh, is China, as I mentioned, 29% India, as you suggested, and the Middle East comes next with about 16%. Uh, and this is the central problem that, that nobody seems to want to, to confront, that, that any real change uh, that's going to be global in, in its impact is going to require a fundamentally different regime from the Paris Climate Accord, because the Paris Climate Accord is something that you can sign uh, and then carry on blithely doing uh, exactly what you like uh, with respect to, to, to burning uh, coal and, and, and other dirty fuels. So I think this is the problem that, that Joe Biden's going to be confronted with, uh, at least I hope it is. Uh, you, you had eight years to try and do something about this when you were vice president, and you you achieved absolutely nothing. What is going to be different this time? Because just putting your signature on the Paris Climate Accord is clearly not going to make any difference at all. If you think the point is to make a difference, as opposed to the point is to satisfy a constituency who wants uh, lots of subsidies for various activities and to feel good about what they're doing. And this is really what I would want to put to Bjorn. I, I mean, I find myself at, at the following loggerheads. There's a very straightforward technocratic solution to this problem, as, as we did in the case of, of ozone. Uh, nuclear power, solar cells, we put a bunch of nuclear power plants out in the desert, let them sequester carbon. Um, uh, at, at, from an economic policy standpoint, carbon tax, we'll, we'll talk about how to get the rest of the world to go along with it. But from a technocratic standpoint, this is a straightforward problem. But politically, we are up against whatever you want to characterize the sort of standard um, cocktail party liberalism that Biden uh, exemplified. On, on the Trump side, we are not seeing a loud, you know, carbon tax, free market, nuclear, you know, at, at the technocratic side either. But you seem to be up against, we are up against a organized secular religion that demands atonement for our sins and the sins of, of capitalism and, and, and really in, in, along with it. Uh, Greta, Greta Thunberg is the, the Joan of Arc of this, or her latest op-ed that I read demanded that, that in order to solve capitalism, in order to solve this, we, we can't do it without solving capitalism, patriarchy, and colonialism. Um, I, even, I read the IPCC report, which is, now this is what science tells us. This is not a political thing. I just have some excerpts I wanted to bring along about what IPCC demands that science tells us we must do in order to solve uh, climate change. We need to have reduced gender inequality and marginalization, improved access to local resources, manipulation of disturbance regimes. That is a quote, I don't know what the hell it means. Community-based natural resource management, provision of adequate housing, microfinance, cash transfers, patent pools and technology transfers, awareness raising and integration into education, gender equity, extension services, sharing indigenous traditional and local knowledge, participatory action research, and social learning. It goes on and on like this. This is not just the IPCC's characterization of science. This has taken over all of the institutions of civil society. You, you can't go to a nonprofit and not bow to how we must atone for our climate sins. God forbid we build nuclear power plants because that would not atone for our sins. Central banks, uh, right up until the COVID crisis, were moving fast on climate change and also inequality. They were going to root into the banking systems and defund energy companies and so on and so forth. So you're up against a secular religion that has taken over the institutions of civil society and a politicized religion as well. Um, how do you make headway with our sort of simple technocratic answer it, it, as even domestically? And then the question of how do we get China and India to go along? Yeah, so I, I think there's a couple of, uh, of, of comments. Um, so uh, as, um, uh, as Neil also pointed out, look, you're not going to be able to get this solved with the current approach. And I think when you talk to people who are really scared about climate change, and as I, as I uh, uh, mentioned in the introduction, that's a lot of people, you've got to ask yourself, do you really want to continue? If you really worry about the end of the world, do you really want to say, so let's stick to the, po the policies that we've tried for the last 30 years that haven't worked? 
uh, you know, presumably that at least, and, and it often get people sort of to realize, oh yeah, wait, maybe we need to do this somewhat differently. Uh, I agree with that there's a lot of bad policy out there. I would actually be a little skeptical uh, just uh, on, on, the, on the specifics on nuclear power yet. I think nuclear power has the opportunity to be incredibly great, but certainly right now it turns out to be very expensive. Uh, which is why it's not really taking off, and we well, should there's, there's, you know, invest. Regulation that has stopped, uh, you know. Oh, oh, yes, yes. I bring but, it up again. If you say the world is ending, and then well, yes. we could build nuclear power plants. We could release sulfur yes. dioxide into the atmosphere. That would stop yes. the end of the world. Yes. No, 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 no. The world is ending, yeah. but we can't do these things that would stop the end of the world. Yes. No. And 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 point well taken. Uh, with with that though, I think also if you look at what uh, uh, Biden is actually suggesting, he's talking about these two trillion that he's going to spend. Some of it is going to be spent on really poor uh, uh, things that we already know. You know, weatherization of homes. Uh, you know, the biggest study shows no, it's actually you know you get about fifty cents back per dollar you spend. Bad idea. Uh, he's also going to promise to uh, cut carbon emissions to zero uh, by two thousand fifty. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, we know uh, there's only one independent study. So only one government has actually dared to ask for an independent study of what that would cost. That's New Zealand. And they found it would cost 16% of GDP per year. Uh, so, you know, that's a, that's a huge cost. That's about $5 trillion for the U.S. Uh, by 2050. So clearly that's not going to happen. But he's also suggesting to spend a lot of money on making the uh, uh, the interstate system much better, which is branded as climate change, but not really. And I I would suspect that most people would actually think that's a that's a good good way to get better transport and probably also a good way to get a lot of jobs fairly quickly and spend money on research and development, which I think is the one that's really going to solve this problem. Because fundamentally, if we care about climate change, it has to be about making sure that we get the technologies that China and India and Africa will actually want to adopt. And that requires technology that's just simply cheaper than fossil fuels. But your, your mention of transportation brings to mind, from my economist's point of view, this is a great example. Uh, so there's a lot of subsidizing electric cars while maintaining zoning restrictions that force people to travel 50 miles a day. Uh, you know, if you just fix the zoning laws, people could walk to work and <laughs> a much simpler system. But that's, you know, fixing, we're all focused on fixing transportation, uh, lowering the emissions of transportation rather than allowing the car, or, or another, my other favorite example, the, the best emissions vehicle around is a Chevy Suburban with all the seats filled. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. Right. Another point, re remember that, talking. you know, electric cars is just going to solve very, very tiny bit of the problem. Uh, even if we get, you know, we have like 5 million electric cars right now, even if we get to 130, uh, which is the uh, ambitious target for 2030, it'll cut carbon emissions by 0.1%. Yeah. But not uh, so we, we, zoning laws is much better for transportation. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Can I just uh, build on, on one thing that uh, Biden uh, mentioned, which I see as the really scary part of what could happen when climate policy goes wrong. He also says that the U.S. should enforce the regulation so other nations should cut their emissions. And if they don't, we're going to do that through some sort of quota or we're going to you know, make tariffs or we're going to do this through free trade, basically. And Europeans are talking about the same thing very, very explicitly. And I think this is one of the really scary opportunity or scary scenarios where we actually have a situation where you're trying to fix a problem. And there is there is a theoretical background for making this argument. But what you're basically trying to fix is a little bit of climate change with destroying a lot of free trade. And so the cost of doing this could very easily be 10 or even 100 times greater than the potential benefit you end up with. Of course, it's also going to be manipulated by a lot. You know, here, here in Europe, uh, the French would love to be able to say, oh, you know, the cheeses that compare, competes with our cheeses emit too much CO2, so they should be taxed more. And obviously, I'm you know, making a, 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 a story here, but, but that kind of thing will happen all over the place. I think that's the most dangerous, really, uh, in terms of actually leading us to places where we'll be less well off. Well, I, I would add the, the, the idea of using financial sanctions uh, you know, ex excluding people from the blunt banking system because we don't like your carbon policies uh, is, al is almost as dangerous as using trade as this weapon. 
Gentlemen, I'd like to go back to the concept of Neil Ferguson high in the mountains with the uh, with the world swells talking about the world's problems and climate change as the existential crisis of our times. And here we are in the summer of 2020. And to the extent there's an existential crisis in the United States, and we saw the same thing in Europe, it's racial justice, not environmental justice. So let me put this to the three of you. Come the summer of 2021, 2022, whenever we move past pandemics, do we return to environmental justice as the cause celeb? Well, I think it's pretty clear, Bill, that the left wants to merge all of these different causes into one. And uh, and that, I think, was uh, a point that, that John nicely made with those quotations earlier. It's already kind of happened. And when Greta Thunberg starts to have an opinion on Black Lives Matter, you, you know that there's no longer any real party wall be between these these different issues. It was obvious in the Green New Deal, you, you may remember that uh, document produced uh, by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other Democrats, uh, that, that what was supposed to be uh, an environmental agenda on closer inspection was uh, a mandate to in, in introduce a planned economy to the United States. And this brings me to a rather important historical point that we haven't touched on yet. If we ask ourselves what in the recent past has done the most harm to humanity, uh, the answer is very clear. Uh, totalitarian regimes uh, by far have done the most harm to humanity in the last 100 years. Uh, tens of millions of uh, Soviet uh, and Chinese citizens died, to give just one example, in man-made famines uh, in the Soviet Union in the early 30s and in China in the early 1950s. The biggest uh, man-made disasters, aside from uh, World War II, that there have ever been. And, and so when we have these discussions and, and we find ourselves being drawn towards uh, an increasingly authoritarian command economy as the solution uh, to the supposed problem. I must say my response is an allergic one. Uh, the principal cause of CO2 emissions uh, in the world today, as I mentioned before, is China. Uh, it is one of the last uh, one-party uh, communist states left standing in the world, unfortunately also the biggest in terms of population of any state in the world. Uh, and the truth is that nobody has a solution to the, the fact that, that China is pursuing and has pursued for decades environmentally disastrous policies in order to keep the Communist Party in power by generating enough employment to uh, stave off revolution. That's the kind of issue that really we should be, be focused on. Uh, but I'm afraid what's going to happen is what has been happening now for years, uh, that there's going to be this melange of ill-assorted issues about which people are supposed to feel guilty if they've grown up in Europe or North America. Uh, and whether it's uh, racial injustice or climate change or the rights of transgender people, the core objective is not in fact to address material, real problems. The core objective of politics is A, uh, to maintain power, uh, and B, to engage in a kind of virtue signaling that solves the conscience of the people doing it, regardless of whether it has any practical effect at all. Could I chime in on, on this one? And then I'm sure Bjorn will want to as well. You brought up a wealth of, of issues here. There is something to climate justice. I, I, I try to listen to the left and, and find um, a point what they're saying. Poor people, uh, which are also largely racial minorities in the US, live in places that are environmentally worse than rich people. Uh, there's a lot more smoke. There's a lot more toxic waste. There's a lot worse water. That has nothing to do with CO2. <laughs> And, and, and mixing it with CO2 is kind of strange. Uh, around the world, um, you know, people, as we've talked about already, live in, in, with horrible air and horrible water. It has nothing to do with CO2, uh, but we would like them to, to, to live in, in better places. But it has not, I think getting to say it's there, there's nothing to do with CO2. And, and, and mixing that with climate, I think, is a big mistake. And, and one of the dangers, the environmental movement is so focused on the one thing that rich white people uh, have any involvement with, which is CO2, that they're not paying any attention to the things that are actually hurting animals, actually hurting life on earth, and actually hurting human health. Uh, the air in Beijing is filthy, and, and not because of the carbon, it's because of the, uh, of the pollutants. 
the political thing you mentioned, the merging of this into what I call the secular religion, a political religious thing, and, and now we have to do it all together, guarantees it won't get fixed. And that's the sad thing. Uh, climate was in the 1990s, fix me if I get the history wrong, but it was hitting towards one of those bipartisan things that, that we're going to fix on a fairly technocratic basis, the way we fix the o ozone layer. And then uh, it just became politicized and you're evil if you're on the other side of this. And you can't talk about climate without talking about all these other social justice issues, which means it will just be uh, something sitting there, uh, as I think you pointed out well, uh, as so much of the, the current uh, uh, racial stuff is about uh, white people sitting at home praying to different gods and feeling better about it, as opposed to actually fixing the neighborhoods, the schools where, where, where people live. And, and the third point is um, back to where we started, the danger in here, I'll bring up the historian again. This has been you know, said to be the greatest danger to Western civilization. Well, as we look back over history, I think the dangers to civilization are not something that comes slowly, predictably, puts a maybe two to 10% cost of GDP and to which you can adapt by moving or by simple technological means if you want to. What are the dangers to civilization? Pandemics, <laughs> uh, wars, civil war, nuclear war, or basically society falling apart. Uh, those are like much higher on the danger to civilization level. Yeah, but, and, and, and sorry, do you want me to give it a crack here as well? Please We're do. All giving I mean, yeah, Bill yes. said, yeah. give a speech. So <laughs> I think we all did. <laughs> yeah, no, so, uh, so I, I, I totally agree with John that, uh, you know, look, it's terrible to be poor in all kinds of different ways. And poor are most negatively affected by climate change, but they're also most negatively affected by lack of health or lack of good clean drinking water or education or nutrition or any other issue. And, and that's both true in rich countries and especially uh, true in, in, in poor countries. And so again, if we actually care about helping people, we should certainly realize that they have many other and bigger uh, issues. The UN actually back in, in 2015, when they were planning for their next set of uh, global goals, asked about 10 million people, the biggest survey ever, what do you want us to prioritize? So they asked for 16 different things from uh, uh, health and education and uh, jobs and nutrition and good governance to climate change. Those top five things I just mentioned were on the top of the list and climate change was at the very at bottom. It was number 16 of 16. It doesn't mean that it's not important, but it just means when, you know, when your kid is dying from easily curable infectious diseases, that's what's on your mind. And of course, that's also what we can fix really, really easily. So clearly, if we actually care about issues, we should make sure we help people get out of poverty. That's one of the best ways to help them with pretty much any other area. But that's, of course, not... It also gets them to care about climate change. <laughs> Yes, of course. You know, they, they will start caring about not cutting down forests. They'll start caring about outdoor air pollution. And eventually they'll get rich enough to also caring about climate change. Absolutely. But I think also, uh, so Bill, back to your question, uh, are we going to be back to talking about climate change? Yes, I think so. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, if we've looked at the last 20 years, uh, we've, we've sort of had detours. We had it last time with the big uh, uh, financial crisis in 2008, nine. Uh, but it fairly quickly got back. And I think it will sort of fester because it is this obvious thing. You can get to scare people. You can get lots of votes for it. You can actually promise to save the world and save the bill for later. Uh, it has all the best sort of characteristics of something that you want to get people really worried about. But I think we There's also need to tell people if, sorry. I'm I'm sorry, our Zoom is- And there's working. lots of subsidies, yes. There's lots of subsidies from the, from the federal government for building your pet projects, yes. Please go ahead. Oh, oh ab absolutely. So I, I think we need to keep saying this is not the way either to help the world's poor or to fix climate change or indeed to help make a better world. Okay, we have about a minute left in this uh, broadcast. So let me close on this question, gentlemen. So Professor Ferguson, I think it was Stalin who said with the Pope, how many divisions does he have? Uh, if you look at Instagram, Greta Thunberg has more divisions than Pope Francis. She has 10 and a half million followers on Instagram. He has 7.1 million the last time I looked. That means she has an army, gentlemen. She can mobilize. She can, she can do protests. She can win this emotional battle. Let us look into the future. And again, at some point where we are moving post-pandemic, I'd like the three of you to give me your thoughts on just what this conversation is going to be on climate change 
when we get off a pandemic, when we return to business as normal, what will the climate change conversation be? Bjorn, what is your side going to argue and how do you counter her side? I think they're going to continue to say, no matter how much you cut carbon emissions, it's not enough. We need to do even more. I think we're also going to see increasingly yellow uh, vest kind of protest because it actually starts getting really expensive. And so what we'll really see is, and that goes to Niall's point, we'll, ha uh, we'll have you know rich countries, Europe, the US, do something. We're not going to do enough. We'll have most countries not do anything. And so we'll basically be at the same place where we were you know, 30 years ago. We'll be saying a lot of stuff. We'll be wasting a lot of resources. We won't be fixing climate. John Cochran, your final thoughts. I think he's right. I mean, I view this in, we are going through a, a reformation. This is a political religious movement uh, focused on you, you know, our, our social sin and redemption and what we do to signal our own virtues. Uh, by being political, it's now beyond the range of, of te technocratic uh, competence. And we've been at it for 30 years. This is the culture war we've been at for 30 years. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, I, I would wish we would wake up and embrace actual cause and effect solutions to actual problems, uh, environmental problems, climate problems, the racial injustice problems in, in the U.S., but um, I, I unfortunately see us just continuing the battle that's been going on for 30 years until something really bad happens and, and we're forced to finally do the right thing after trying everything else. Neil Ferguson, you get the last word. Well, history just never gives you the crisis that you've been predicting, uh, and, and that will be Greta Thunberg's fate. I predict that at some point in the next few years, she'll be invited to uh, Montana to a conference on the environment, and Al Gore will be there too. Uh, and during the conference, the Yellowstone uh, supervolcano will erupt, uh, launching a vast quantity of uh, life-threatening uh, emissions uh, into the atmosphere and revealing that we had much more to be afraid of from uh, geology than from man-made climate change. And I'll have a good laugh before I die in that uh, eventuality. Historically, vol volcanoes have given us some very disastrous little cooling episodes. <laughs> Quite right. So last week, Neil, you had three gorges blowing up. This week, you have Yellowstone blowing up, just for the record. I always look on the bright side, Phil. It's my tie to the book you're working on, I think, but that's another topic for another day. <laughs> All right, well, that's it for this episode of Goodfellows. We'll be back next week with a new conversation, a new topic, and maybe a little lineup change, but you're just going to have to tune in to find out exactly who's in next week. On the behalf of the Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, and our guest this week, Bjorn Lundborg, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, we wish you and yours the very best in these troubled times. Stay strong, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. By the way, I mentioned Bjorn's book. It's a wonderful book. Please get it. It's called, again, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. It was released earlier this month. It's on Amazon. Go get it. I mentioned that Greta has 10.5 million followers. Bjorn, I hope you sell at least 10.5 million books, maybe more. Get to Ferguson level on this. All of them. Okay? <laughs> So that's it for this week of Goodfellows. Uh, tune in next week, please. Again, thanks for watching, and uh, we'll see you next week. Take care.